Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 234 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we've had an incredible month so far, and today, as promised last week, we are doing a deep dive into small town church, because guess what? A lot of people live in the cities, but small towns, church is dying, but it doesn't have to. Uh, there are unique issues that impact the small church. And this is true for like small businesses. This is true for churches that are maybe in an urban center that are branching out into smaller cities and smaller towns. And Donnie Griggs has uh, really done a lot of time thinking and actually leading in a small church context. So I think you're going to absolutely love today's episode. And uh, we got a lot more coming up, including, yes, we are releasing an episode next Tuesday, which is Christmas Day. Yeah, I promise you. My staff will be off opening gifts with their families, okay? So, so so, we're not making people work. But as you know, this stuff is all automated, but then it's going to be there. So, you know, if you got a Christmas drive or you're going to go for a run or something like that, it's there for you because we ship every Tuesday. And we just worked ahead a little bit, that's all. Anyway, so, uh, hey, I want to tell you about a couple of things I think can really help you get an edge into 2019. As a pastor, I understand the grind. I know you are laser focused on Christmas right now, but you got to start thinking about Easter. And some of you may be feeling a bit behind. You don't even know the direction you're going to start the new year. So here's some help. Check out a new movement called the Red Letter Challenge. And I, I don't use that word lightly. I think this thing has the potential to be a movement. It's a 40-day turnkey church campaign that will give your church, I think, results and ultimately help produce more effective disciples. It's targeted on the red letters in the Bible and getting your people into Jesus' teaching and applying it into their everyday life. Churches that have used the red letter challenge have seen small groups grow by an average of 40%, even in large congregations, which if you lead a large church, you know how hard that is. Here's what one pastor said about his congregation's experience with the red letter challenge. He said, this is the most dynamic, exciting, challenging, and for lack of a better word, coolest 40-day resource I've ever seen. Our church couldn't get enough of it. And even after the challenge, the church is still putting the five principles of the Red Letter Challenge into practice. The Red Letter Challenge has been a game changer for us. So the nice thing about this, everything's done for you. Small group materials, study guides, videos, sermon manuscripts, even if you want to adapt it to your own, at least you've got a baseline. There's a kid's curriculum, even a graphics package. It's done for you. It's turnkey. So right now you can go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to see the church packages ready to go for you and you will save 10 to 40%. The packages can start if you're a small church with as little as 10 copies, like basically run a group through it or a thousand copies or more. I mean, it's customizable, it's scalable. If you have any questions, quantities, you want more information, go to redletterchallenge.com slash carry. They'd be happy to help you and get the new year started with a bang. And speaking of 2019, uh, I have said this over and over again, and I just believe it. Like, what is your mobile strategy? And I know for us, as we started to take digital giving seriously and digital engagement seriously, it changed everything for our church. And surprisingly, 
you would think, okay, well, if we're like talking to people every day, that's going to decrease weekend attendance. Actually, if you do it right, it will increase weekend attendance. Plus, you start showing up in people's lives day after day. Well, who can help you with that? Pushpay. Pushpay is a mobile strategy, a giving strategy, and an engagement strategy all in once. They're the leader at keeping the church at the cutting edge of technology, and they have a huge heart for the church. Last year in giving alone, they helped 7,000 churches process billions of dollars in generosity. They can help you too. So right now, there is a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Go to pushpay.com slash carry. You can sign up to talk to a representative who's got a special offer for listeners of this podcast. No obligation, but they you can figure out talking to someone whether this is going to work for you or not. So make sure you check out pushpay.com forward slash carry. In the meantime, my conversation with Donnie Griggs. He is the lead pastor of One Harbor Church, a multi-location church, and the author of Small Town Jesus, a great book. He is a great thinker, and we dive into something that's really close to my heart as we see things really not getting better in small towns, but maybe that can change. Here we go. Well, Donnie, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to have you. Yeah, man, this is a huge privilege. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so have you only done small town ministry? Is that sort of your background? So I'm, I'm born and raised in the small town that I'm in right now. I lived in a small town in Texas for a while. And then I worked at a church in Southern California for like five years. So that definitely doesn't count. A small town was like L.A. Right. Um, no, that's and, not a small town. No, definitely not. But, um, but it's funny, like those big cities, they, they feel like a bunch of little towns together. You know, it's got those dynamics. Um, but then ultimately, yeah, I've been back here for about nine and a half years. Oh, that's great. And back to the town you grew up in. Uh, yep. Now, when you say small town, like how, how small? That's a good question. Um, uh, so our town is 9,000-ish. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's technically a small town. Um, but uh, sometimes you get into it with people because they think, no, no, my, my town's really small because we're 100 people. And that's true. It's smaller. Um, <laughs> our area got a lot of smaller towns. There's a little island near us called Davis. And a lot of the people there, their last name is Davis. I know a guy whose name is Davis Davis from Davis. Um, that's really small. Ours is not that small. Still small compared to most. Davis most Davis people. from Davis. That's uh, it's like a, a Simpsons guy. episode. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, and you have multiple locations, right? At One Harbor Church, the church you planted. Yeah, we have four locations now, and we're kind of looking to continue on that journey. We just our region feels like that's a, a sustainable sort of method of multiplication. Um, a lot of these little towns. You know, it's going to be a real challenge to um, multiply in a sustainable way to like start something autonomous. Um, so multi-site's working for right now. Isn't that interesting? So those towns, again, just so that we orient listeners, we're going to have principles that apply, I think, to mid-sized churches, to people looking, you know, larger churches looking to plant in smaller locations. And even, I think, to a certain extent for any business leaders listening who want to be interested in small towns, but how small are the other towns that you guys are in? Yeah. I mean, some of them are around a couple of thousand, um, two to three thousand. That's almost like village level, right? Yeah. But it's, it's funny. Like it's all, it's all context, you know? I mean, um, that feels big to some other little town, you know, but it, it, so, um, I mean, but each of these, each of these little towns, you know, they're big enough to have their own identity. You know, they have their own feel, they have their own rhythms and their own sort of prejudices and stuff. And I mean, we're, we're the, we're the big ugly city 
you know, because we have a Walmart, you know, like we're, yeah. we're like, you know, we're, we're like, um, so, so it's just interesting how it's just, it's all about context and perspective and all the rest, but there's a lot of little towns like that all across our region that, you know, we, we hope God gives us a chance to start something in. Now, um, do you think that churches in small towns, are they at the risk of going extinct? Uh, that's a, that's a good question. I think, um, a couple of things. One, I, I think there's, there's certain, like there's a, a phrase the Marines get run to the sound of the guns. Um, and that's because instinctively we run away from gunfire, not towards it. I, I think, um, you know, things like poverty, addiction, racism, um, depression, suicide, things like that, that are just rampant in small towns. Um, I mean, you know, some, some of the statistics are way higher than in urban centers. Um, you know, small town pastors and churches who aren't running at these things and trying to make an impact in these things, I feel like are um, definitely at risk of, of just dying of irrelevance. So I think that's a huge challenge, you know, sort of just making church about being a nice person and going to heaven when you die, um, will, you know, is, is almost guaranteeing uh, irrelevance. And um, I'd say the other, the other real challenge we've got is that um, seminaries and networks and denominations, if they don't start to uh, cast a compelling vision for small town ministry for the next generation, we will, we, we will go irrelevant. We'll, it'll go extinct um, because there will be no new, like no new generation of, of, of leaders leaning in, you know? So that's interesting. I didn't say anything, but at the very beginning, you said every small town has its own prejudices, and you just mentioned racism. Right. What What do you mean by that? Like, because uh, I mean, that's a very real issue in large and small cities. So is there anything particular about small towns that makes that different? Yeah. So I, I, lived, in, I lived in Los Angeles. I mean, actually, I lived in a, um, a suburb of Los Angeles for a while that had a high Korean population. The, the McDonald's sign was in Korean out front. Wow. I mean, it was felt like you were in, you know, in Korea. And, and you know, in a, in a context like that, in an urban context like that, you know, um, multiculturalism is, is forced upon you. You know, you're, you, you know, you're outright just ridiculous if you haven't embraced it. But in, in small towns and rural contexts, you can, you have to go out of your way to, to find racial diversity. Um, and, and it doesn't even seem like people on either side really want it. Um, in our area, it feels like people are quite okay with white church, black church. Um, we could all just get along just fine like that and never, and never actually, you know, have anything different. Um, and so in, in smaller communities, you don't have this melting pot dynamic that forces um, racial diversity on you, which leaves you to really remain in um, these, these sort of long held prejudices, I think, longer uh, without them being checked. Um, and and yeah, we've, just, we've just found it, a real, we have to keep saying again and again over years, you know, Hey, it's it's on on earth as it is in heaven, and in heaven we don't we don't see this this racial diversity that we see on earth, and we have to keep reminding people this is important. It's a thing because the culture we live in isn't doing that to us in a small town like it is. In so a- sorry, I think I think you meant um, just to be clear that in heaven there will be racial diversity. I think you said it there won't be, but but you're you're saying there yeah, will be. But there won't be this division we see on Sunday. Oh, the division. That's what I missed. Thank you. Yeah. The division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Absolute, like absolute racial diversity in heaven, that's our paradigm for what ministry here should, we should seek to, you know, to, to pursue. And, and, totally. um, yeah. and in small towns, it's just not on anyone's radar. Like in a big city, you kind of, you're forced to, to have, it, you know, to make sense. How does, how does that work in a small town? Like, do you find your, 
you have to push hard against prejudice at a deeper level? Is it possible to create a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in a small town? I think it is. I think it requires um, a long view of, um, you have to, basically, like, I, I don't think we'll change that kind of culture, you know, I think it's a 10-year, 20-year kind of thing. You just chip away, chip away, chip away at it. Um, we're nine and a half years in, and we are starting to see a lot of um, a lot more racial diversity, which has been awesome. We're really thankful for that. Um, but I think too, there's there's you know there's a lot of complexity to this because I think a lot of times what people mean by racial diversity is a non-white person joining a white church. Um, mm. That's not that's not really biblical diversity, you know. And, uh, and so there's just all kinds of challenges to this that um, aren't going to go away overnight, but they're not going to go away at all in a small town if we're not really, you know, um, faithfully making a big deal about it, you know, and just, I think you just have to kind of set your sights on, this is going to take some time, you know? Well, and just because it's an audio podcast, I mean, you're a Caucasian guy, like I am, how do you create, like, how, how have you approached that over the last nine years where you're running maybe counter to the culture in a really, really small town? So talking about it um, is, is, is countercultural. Um, I, I think to, um, trying to, to bridge divides, you know, in our community, uh, just relationally, whether that ever leads to a Sunday morning or not, doesn't matter. You know, you mean we're, who's we're at just, your dinner table, who's in your backyard? Uh, yeah. Who, I mean, who are in, like, who are your friends, you know? Um, and, and, and I think too, like just having a realistic approach. I mean, I'm not, I'm not thinking that realistically, you know, healthy necessarily looks like 50% white or 50% black because our town is mostly white. You know, mm. but um, I think if we're faithfully reaching our community, there should be at least a portion of, of that, you know, and uh, of that kind of diversity. And I think we need it. We need we need diversity. We we get to see um, we get to see different aspects of who God is from people who are different than us. And so um, I think it's 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 not the, the kind of classic majority culture you know, approach of everyone needs me. That isn't true. It isn't godly. Isn't healthy. We need each other, you know. And so it's trying to um, even get to the point where you go, man, this, this is not about some sort of political statement or publicity stunt. This is, this is us genuinely saying we, we need each other. We, we care, we care about people different than us. And we want to do, we want to do life together. We want to do church together. Hmm. Um, Okay. I really appreciate you clarifying that. I just wanted to be clear about what we were talking about. Um, what's interesting in Canada where I live, which, you know, is maybe 10% of the audience for this podcast, but, I I feel like we are 10 years, 15 years ahead slash behind to the United States. And what's really concerning me, I live in the most populous province. I'm an hour north of Toronto. And you go into small town Ontario, and I mean 20,000 people, 25,000 people, 15,000 people. You know, our province's state is littered with towns like that. It is very common now not to find a life-giving church in those towns and increasingly in the hamlets and the villages, maybe no church. And are you seeing that yet in the U S in some areas where the church, the light has been snuffed out on the candle or where you would say, Hey, there's no real witness left in this community or not quite yet. I think there are definitely parts of the country that are feeling that. Um, Don Carson, another great Canadian. uh, He said a few years ago, um, you know, that one genera- generation generation will believe the gospel, the next generation assumes it, and then the next generation will deny it. 
And we're starting to see a, a denial of the gospel um, in small town America, which 50 years ago, people would have thought unthinkable. Uh, that's what happens in cities, not in small towns. But um, we've systematically pulled out of small towns to focus on cities for good reasons, but it's now created a real void. And so New England, um, I was just on a, on a call with a friend of mine who leads a church in rural Wyoming. Um, and I mean, you know, you're, you're talking 65 miles to the closest place with a, another gas station and no churches um, anywhere. Um, we've seen that happen in places like Texas and, all, you know, even in our area in North Carolina, there are there are parts of eastern North Carolina where I'm at where um, there, there are, you know, there are buildings, but there are no churches. Um, you might have one guy who goes to, you know, shows up one Sunday every couple of months. Um, but I mean, no one even comes to that, you know, it's it, so more and more we are losing. Um, we, we're, I think we're getting where you are. We're, we're losing gospel witness in small town America, which, again, would have been something that no one could have conceived, you know, 50 years ago. No, I know. Like there there are so many communities in Canada where you've got good schools, you've got baseball diamonds, hockey rinks, soccer pitches, and no life-giving church or basically no church left. Uh, they're dropping like flies. And it's just, it's just astounding. Now, one of the challenges is how do you motivate young leaders? Because everybody's attracted to cities. You know, what is it? 70, 80% of the population, I'm making up stats right now, lives in urban centers or near urban centers how do you even motivate young leaders to go work in a small town and serve there? Yeah, I think there's a couple angles I try to take. Um, I think the first thing is to help them see like unhelpful idolatry um, that comes. I think a lot of times, you know, guys basically are motivated by like, I want to go make much of Jesus, but there has to be really like a boutique coffee shop. You know, in America, there's got to be a target for my wife to go shopping in. And I want like the most Twitter followers possible. And, you know, those, those are these, like these three unsaid, these three unsaid, like, you know, these things have to be in place, you know, good coffee target and lots of Twitter followers for me to go, um, which is just a, a bizarre mix of, of criteria. So, so hitting at those things and saying, hey, that, that, those aren't actually helpful. Those aren't biblical. Those are really unhelpful. Um, but I think, too, we, we haven't, you know, we haven't told stories of God doing, you know, big things in small towns. And so people don't know about it. Um, we haven't helped establish theological, um, you know, a theological grid for this. Like Jesus was born in a small town. Jesus did big things in small towns. Jesus sent his disciples to small towns. I mean, it, there's, you know, we haven't talked about that. We haven't, we haven't showed people, uh, shown, shown new leaders the, the massive need. And so a lot of people still have a very idyllic, um, simplistic, uh, quaint view of small towns that is far from reality. Uh, they're riddled with, you know, everything from human trafficking to suicides, to depression, to addiction. I mean, I read a statistic when I was writing my book that 80, like the kids in, in rural America were 80% more likely in eighth grade to be a heroin addict um, than if they were in a big city. I mean, it's insane. Um, I've done two funerals in the last two weeks. Uh, we're not talking about how much we need the gospel in small towns, you know, across America and North America around the world. And so, the lack of theological clarity, the lack of missional clarity, and then the just idolatry that comes with urban-centric ministry sometimes, unfortunately, um, I think those things are working against us. Is it a little bit, I don't know if you've read Hillbilly Elegy or not, but is there more of that? Like that was all about what, the Appalachians and um, 
you know, that area, Tennessee, Kentucky. Right. Is that more characteristic of small town America today than maybe most people realize? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that book. Um, I, I think in America, I don't know if it, if, it, if it got to Canada, but there was a show in the 50s, the Andy Griffiths show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think most people know that. I sure did. I watched it. Yeah, so it's actually based on a small town in, in North Carolina. And you got Barney Fife, the deputy, he carried a bullet in his shirt because he, you know, he never needed it, you know? Right. Uh, and, and, and ironically, that town is now one of the leading towns in the country per capita for crime. Um, the town that, that There the is whole, actually a Mayberry. Well, yeah, yeah, Mount Airy, that area is now like the, the town that was based on is now, you know, the, one of the, you know, per capita, one of the leading towns in the country um, on crime and addiction. Um, and, and that's what's happened. We, we thought small town America was fine. And so we focused on areas that we knew weren't okay. Um, and we, we retreated essentially from small towns and we flooded into the suburbs for, for a decade or so. And then we flooded into the cities for the last couple of decades. And um, historic, historically now, there's been 50 or 60 years since people took rural ministry seriously. And, and we, can see the, we can see the ramifications for that. So what are seminaries not teaching graduates about small town ministry? Yeah, I, I think kind of going back to that thing I said a minute ago, they're not giving them a theological grid for this. They're not, they're not showing them the missional like, necessity of this. Um, I mean, those two things are powerful when, when you're considering calling, you know, um, should everybody go to a small town? No, but certainly some of us should, you know, I mean, Jesus said the field is the world and, and that includes small places and big places. And, um, and, and, and so I, I think um, all that we're really putting in front of quite often, all that we're putting in front of uh, a, a seminary student is urban centric material. And we're, we're taking them to conferences in big cities. They're hearing from pastors from big cities Everything who lead big churches. I mean, that's who gets invited to speak. Have tons of followers on Twitter. And all of this is is communicating subconsciously or consciously, hey, this is what's important. Um, And so I I think we're not putting this forward as a valid thing. The reality is that that, that a lot of these kids are going to go, their their denomination or their network is not going to send them to Manhattan to plant their first church. They're going to end up in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina or Canada. (laughs) And, and, and they're going to be cutting their teeth, so to speak, on, on something. But their, their sights are set on more. And um, Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. But, you know, you're, you're right. You have these ideas that you're going to plant this mega church and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you're going to end up somewhere in rural America, rural North America, serving in a small church, probably in a small city or a small town. Right. And the whole time you're there, you can't wait to leave. And everybody can feel that, you know, um, this pe- these people aren't big enough for you. They're not good enough for you. You're made for more. Um, even your like quest to be successful can really so often just be, um, you know, the, the, the quest to get recognized. You know, it's not it's not like I care about these people. It's I care about that thing one day. And these people are, you know, you know, are, are part of me getting to that thing one day. Um, and so these people become a stepping stone instead of being people who are made in God's image who have massive problems only Jesus can solve and who deserve to be taken seriously. How did you get a heart for this? So I was born and raised in this little town and I, you know, then I left and like, you know, like most people who leave small towns, I thought I'm never coming back. You know, usually the people who can get out, get out and don't come back. Um, and then I long, very, very long story short, I ended up back here with my wife some nine years later visiting. And I just felt like all my friends were going to hell as quick as possible. 
Um, and there felt like there was this massive need for something different, um, something mm-hmm. that would aggressively take um, people who had given up on Christianity, you know, who thought church would never be relevant for them or hooked on all kinds of, you know, narcotics or whatever, actually take them seriously. And, and um, God just broke our heart. That's, that's the long story short. And so we ended up back here and I felt benched for a season. Um, like God took me from LA to this, he must be done with me, which I, I meet lots of guys who feel like that. Um, I, I, I felt, you know, like I was wasting my life. I felt guilty that I wasn't in a big urban center. Um, I dealt with all these conflicting feelings for the first year or so. And then I just looked around me and I thought, God, is it work? He, he's, he's saving people. He's changing people. He's doing something. And this is worth giving my life to. Um, and then I just started considering all the other little towns out there who needed what we were, what we were doing. And one thing led to another, you know, and then this burden just grew to, to try to help encourage and equip other pastors. One of the things I think people are afraid of in a small town, and listen, I live in a rural municipality. So, I mean, I go to the grocery store, I run into people I know, I've lived here for over 20 years. So, I mean, I get the dynamic. But a lot of people say, well, I'm moving into a fishbowl. I don't want to live in a fishbowl. I don't want people to know my business. You know, it's, it's ironic, actually, because I think what you say is true. People want to be known. They want to be famous, but they don't want to be known like in the fishbowl sense that everybody's, you know, smelling what you're barbecuing for dinner. They don't want that kind of knowledge. What, why do you call small towns fishbowls? And why do you think so many people are afraid of that? Or do you think people are afraid of it? Yeah. Well, I think you brought up a good point there. People want to be known of, they don't want to be known, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that's just human nature. You know, you, you want everybody to, to like you at a distance, you know, if they get close, they'll find out who you really are. Um, but small towns are, are, are they are like fish. I feel like, it feel like it's living in one, like a, a long episode of cheers, you know, it was this like American show about this bar where everybody knew your name and knew everything about you and knew all your business. That's how it feels. Um, I cannot go to the store, any store and without running into bunches of people that I know. Um, and you know, that can either drive you crazy or you can embrace it. Um, it can either work really negatively or it can work really positively. And, um, and so you're not going to get away from that, you know, in a small town, I just encourage people to wrap their arms around it and leverage it, you know, um, for the gospel. And, um, you know, you've got to be mindful of, which I think you should act like this anywhere you go. I think in a city, you should care um, just as much about about people and things. But I think in a small town, for example, like a restaurant, if I go write a terrible review on TripAdvisor, I mean, everyone's going to know it's me. And they're like, he was just here. We, we, you know, we know exactly who that is. You know, <laughs> if, I, if I mouth off at some waitress, well, she's related to half the town. You know, if I, if I, I mean, all of these, if I, if I start getting speeding ticket after speeding ticket, I mean, the whole town is going to know by the end of the night that I got a speaking ticket, you know, it's just, so, so it can really work against you. You got to watch out for that. But man, we've just seen the contrary be true. We've seen like word spread about how good Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. We've seen it spread like wildfire in this little town. Hmm. Um, people talk and I think that can be a good thing. I don't think it has to be a bad thing, you know? Um, yeah. How do you handle that dynamic for you and your family? Uh, to have your privacy, like, does it ever bother you that you can't go to the grocery store without it taking twice as long as maybe it could? It did at first. Um, and I'm from here, but I had been gone so long. I was used to the LA sort of in and out 
you know, culture where nobody knew you and you could just be anonymous everywhere you went. Um, but I mean, in a good way, it really forces you to slow down, um, which I think is helpful and good. Um, I mean, we, we fight for moments of privacy, but we don't, we don't try to create a life of privacy. That's not going to be realistic, but we can find moments, you know, we need date night where it can just be us. And we have to be creative with that. I mean, I've had more than one date night where someone pulled up a chair and just said, Pastor, my marriage is falling apart. I mean, I'm clearly on a date. Well, mine is now too. Thank you for interrupting date night. I was like, man, my marriage is is now at stake. You know, (laughs) there's a candle between me and my wife and it's just us. Don't pull up a chair, you know? Um, So we've had to get creative with that stuff, but we've we've learned to only fight for moments of it, um, not to try to demand a lot more than that because... Um, man, this is the privilege of being a missionary, you know? And I mean, if you went to some village in Papua New Guinea or something, everybody would know you there, you know? Um, if you read the gospels everywhere, Jesus, he never got, he never got any sleep. He never got any, he never got a break anywhere. He was full of interruptions and, and he embraced those interruptions. And, and I, I just think, I think that there's a selfishness that, you know, especially in the West that we've, we've adopted as normal that, um, you have to let go of a lot of that in a small town. Yeah, and, and to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, how has your family adjusted to that? Yeah, I think we're learning as we go. I'm, I'm nervous for my kids. I mean, you know, we lead a, a large, a very large church for a town our size, yeah. which means that everywhere we go, they're not just going to know me, they're going to know my wife. They're not just going to know my wife, they're going to know my kids. And my kids are just kids, you know? Mm-hmm. They're not church planners, they're just kids. And, so, and they're not perfect and, you know. Absolutely not. And, and so, um, we're just trying to be careful with that dynamic, you know, um, that we don't, we don't, we don't, um, we don't fall into, I think the easy trap is to, is to kind of look like you've got it all together all the time. Um, in small towns, people want their pastor to have it all together all the time. And, um, and so we've had to resist that, you know, that's an, do you think that pressure is more intense in small towns? I do. Yeah, I do. I think, I think the ideal that, you know, is in most people's mind when they think of the pastor is he's just got it together. I know this because right. nine, over nine years in, every time I tell a, a story about me sinning on Sunday morning, people will come up to me and say, please don't do that. It makes us uncomfortable. It's not helpful. People don't need to know that about you. And um, Really? Yeah. Uh, every single time I tell an embarrassing, you know, a story that makes me look bad, I'll get that kind of feedback. Like a self-deprecating story. And you're not dropping like, you know stuff that you would tell your counselor you're you're no, telling them just, things just, like just give me being, an example well just being honest about my own struggle with with greed or my own struggle with wanting everyone to like me or anything just any any like any time that like i preach a sermon and say hey this sin is not just something you deal with or people out there deal with this is something i deal with i want everyone to like me I, this is how it's affected me this is how this is the things that makes me want to do you know like just being candid and honest and and, and putting myself off the stage, on the floor, in the room. I'm just like you. I'm, I'm a total wreck who needs Jesus, you know, in, in many respects, makes people uncomfortable um, because it, it, the idea in small town, at least America, is you got it together and basically you spend your time praying, reading the Bible and going from house to house, greeting all of us and eating pie. You know, th- this is what this is what's been taught as normal. And so, um, but man, it, it you know, it puts you on the pedestal, not Jesus. And, and so we've, we've had to fight a lot against that, you know? How do you do that? How do you fight against that? Just being a real person. 
Um, not, you know, trying to be me all the time. Um, I'm, I'm the chaplain for our, our fire department, our EMS. And um, funny story, when I showed up the first time on a, on a fire call, um, nobody knew who I was yet. It was a really bad fire fatality, uh, 5.30 in the morning. And one of the firefighters saw me taking a picture because the chief had asked me to, and he, he gave me the middle finger. Um, I'm, I'm guessing across the border that means the same thing. Yeah, and, it does. Yep. I understand. I mean, it was a big one. It was like a bald eagle, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, and everyone shouted, people who knew me shouted, like, don't do that. It's the pastor. And it was this, it was a great little moment because it gave me a chance to say, Hey, I don't, you don't be different on me. I won't be different. I'm going to be the real me. You be the real you. And I just want you to, my hope for me and you is in a real Jesus who already knows all of us, you know, he already gets hmm. all the time, you know? I, 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 my soul is ever before him. He knows, he knows my thoughts before they even come into my head. And so continually being real and, and being authentic. Um, I think that's really cool and hip in a big city. I think it freaks people out in a small town. How many people come to your church on a weekend? Typical service. Yeah. Across the four locations, somewhere between like 16 and 1800. That's incredible. And at your main, like the, the campus that you're at, you'd get in a town of 9,000, you'd get? Somewhere between 800 and 1,000. That's crazy. Yeah. Do, they, do they think that's nuts? Yeah, I think that's nuts. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it's amazing, you know? That's great. After nine years. Wow. Is there, okay, I got to ask you a question. Is there a suspicion among those who maybe quite haven't, embraced your mission yet like what is that church doing here it doesn't belong here it's too big i mean i've been on your website it's too slick it's too do you yeah. get that kind of pushback we, we we have i mean the rumors no matter what you do you're gonna get you're gonna get lots of rumors in a small town you know so walk us through some of the rumors just oh my out gosh. of curiosity Man, I don't even know. Yeah, we've, like, we've had our share over the years, so maybe this is just therapy the, on my part. The classic one, you know, somebody told somebody sometime that we require um, we require members to show us their like tax documents, how much they made, so we could compare it to their giving. Um, and I mean, I hear this. This is nine years of me hearing this rumor. I mean, people post it on really. Facebook. It's insane. No one, no one, no, I mean, I, I could probably go to jail for that. I, I don't know. I mean, that sounds crazy. We would, we would never, ever, ever ask that, you know? Uh, another one uh, I heard a few months ago is that um, I use the church's finances to um, go on vacations. I mean, that's, I think that's like fraud or something. That's, that's definitely not allowed, you know? Um, and then someone told my wife recently at, at the gym, they said that they heard our pastors were into wife swapping which is what it is. I mean, where on earth are people getting this? But this is the stuff we hear. We, we hear the most bizarre, like you can't even figure out where they would even begin to come up with that, you know? Um, so that stuff, um, that stuff happens. I was going to say too, man, I think like when people say that like we're being too slick or whatever, I do kind of like lean in and listen, you know, um, because it's so easy to, to see what's working somewhere else and just copy paste it. Um, that there's a chance we we have missed it here and there on the culture, and we have tried to be a little too slick or whatever. And so, um, you know, I, I don't I want to hear what's really going on in, in, in criticism like that. But I mean, no matter what you do, you're going to get it. You know, what parts of you know sort of the Protestant evangelical attractional model work in a small town? Like, what are some practices that you say, yep, this totally works? 
And then I want you to walk through some things that you're like, yeah, and we couldn't do that. We tried it, didn't work, or we just dismissed it. Like what, what translates and what doesn't? So I think, um, I mean, I've learned a ton from Larry Osborne. He has been a huge help to us. Um, I mean, he, he gets practical on things like seats and parking spaces and right, kitchen right. industry space. I mean, that, that stuff's just, just transferable anywhere. If you don't have that, you can't grow. I mean, you, you physically can't, God can't physically put anyone else in the building. Um, so those types of things, uh, contextualization, really thinking through how do we, how do we do this in a way that feels authentic and real? And I mean, you know, that, that, that is huge in small towns. Um, you know, do we, we, we try to use the phrase authentic, um, excellence, you know, so we want things to be done well, but we want them done in, in a, in a way that feels like authentic, um, which would not be unique to us by any stretch. But I think when you push past that and you, you get into things that are more sort of like showy, um, mm-hmm. I think automatically you start eliminating, you, you eliminate the people who need to be there. You could keep people who are like, yes, you know, I wish I was at church in Atlanta or New York or wherever. And now I get to be every Sunday, you know, but those aren't, that's not really the audience you're going for. You know, you're going for the people who don't know Jesus. And, and so we've had to be careful with lighting and we've had to be, I mean, if, if I rolled in with a bunch of lasers and fog, I mean, it'd be it, it'd be over, you know, like people would leave instantly, you know, um, video, uh, is a, is a, is a bit of a, a tricky one. Um, so we're multi-site, but like, uh, we do video sparingly um, at those locations. Um, I mean, a couple of our locations haven't had a video of me maybe once a year. Um, we raise up live preachers just because it's just a little too much for people to get their heads around. And I mean, there's guys in small town ministry who would disagree with me, but I mean, that's a challenge here. You know, it's, you know, um, people don't want you to big time. You know, they don't want you to come across like, you're, you're so big, you can't actually be here in person. Like that is really frowned upon. So anything that kind of gets into that, we, we, have, to, we have to steer clear from, you know? Anything else that, that just drilling down a bit more that comes across as showy or showboating or too big town? I mean, I can't really talk about like social media, you know, so I mean, people don't care. They could care less. I mean, you know, I, I'm thankful to be on this podcast, but people in my church are never going to listen to this. They, they, right. they might still not have the internet. They, they don't care. Like they, they don't know what Twitter is. They could care less. Um, and so those types of things, like if I'm, if I name drop or if I like, you know, I'm going to go speak at this thing or whatever, I've just learned like people are just turned off by that. Even if I'm trying to say, Hey, pray for me. They're like, Oh, you're getting on a plane again. You know, fancy mm. guy in planes. That's just not their like life. They don't just fly everywhere and, um, and, and so it's just thinking through like some of those dynamics that are really like popular and, and even like, I think, um, seen as, as valuable, you know, um, lots of other places here, um, people are just like, why are you leaving? You know, they just can't, they can't comprehend it, you know? And when we dealt with this, every time I left town, no one came to church. So I had to stop telling them I was leaving town just so they showed up and then it was awkward to leave, you know, um, that they, they want to build church all around you. And you have to fight against it all the time, you know? You mean they want to kind of just keep you in a box or what? They want to, they want to put you on a pedestal. That's what they want. They, they want you to be their pastor. They want you to deal with all their problems. They want you to be there nonstop all the time. They want you to be Jesus. And so that like, that's another whole challenge, you know, is, is, is the fight to build away from yourself and a culture that wants to build towards you. And you've got this wicked heart that wants people to build towards you, you know, like, 
you know, you've got this heart that wants people to bow down to you, you know, because we're sinners and mm-hmm. it's exceptionally challenging, you know. Well, I think in a big city, people be like, it's not all about you. In a small town, people are like, hey, it can be all about you if you want it to be, you know. That's fascinating. What makes when you're hiring, when you're adding team members or if you're advising other people, what do you think Donnie makes for qualifications that create a great small town pastor? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll kind of extend it pastor or leader. I think, sure. man, I think people who love that small town, you can't get away from that. Um, people need to feel like you love where they live because they, a lot of these people love where they live. You know, I love where I live. There's a book about our town and my mom's on the cover with my granddad. I, I love this place. If you came in here and were negative about it, you put me off. I'd never come back, you know? Um, so leaders who love your, your small town, um, leaders, I think who, who love this church that you're a part of, that, that they're going to be a part of. They're not trying to change everything all the time, you know? I think too, like uh, you'll get leaders or pastors. We've gotten folks who come through who had past ministry experience, and I mean, our context is so unique, and small towns are so unique um, that they have to be really teachable. You know, um, I, I know I know guys who do sort of ministry. You know, that, that's very like you know sort of fundamentalistic, very narrow. Um, and you would think, you know, no one would go to that church. Well, they go to New York City and they get 300 people because out of the millions and millions of people, there are 300 people who want to go to that church. Well, if you show up in, in our town and do something very narrow, no one's coming. You know, but maybe one person in the whole region wants what you got. So someone who's teachable, um, I think, uh, as I said earlier, people who don't see ministry in the town as a stepping stone to something more. I mean, those those are things that I think are, I mean, there's more, but I think those are like, They've got to love the town. They've got to like love this church and appreciate it. And I want to, I see guys coming in like with replants and they want to change everything overnight. And you think, gosh, this church is 150 years old. You know, you got to slow down a little bit, you know? Um, and then again, like the, the stepping stone thing where it just feels like all they're thinking about is how quick can I get out of here? No one's going to open up and trust you. What is the pace of change like in a small town? I use 10 years every time I think about us doing something that's going to change anything. I think it's probably going to take us 10 years. That's kind of like our default language. My friend Stephen Whitmer up in New England says their, their vision for their, their area is 100 years. You've got to think slower, um, but I would, I would marry that with you don't want slow to be because you're sloppy or because you're lazy. Again, kind of appealing to Larry Osborne's wisdom on this. I mean, I think just creating a culture where you can try stuff all the time is really helpful. Some things happen quicker than I thought they would, but most things we just kind of put our head down and think 10 years from now, we'll look up and maybe there'll be something to look over our shoulder and be thankful for, you know? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing almost 10 years in, like, man, we feel like lots of people really get the gospel where before they just tried harder and did better every day. And, you know, just, it was just morality. And, 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 and we're thankful for that. We're seeing the, you know, areas of addiction and things like that. We're seeing change begin to happen, but it just takes a long time. What have you changed that would be different from, like you planted this church, so you weren't doing uh, a transition, but did you have to start with like a lighter version of what you wanted to do? A, um, not dumbed down, that's not the word I'm looking for, but just like, okay, this is my ultimate vision for the church is X, but we're going to have to start here and work toward that? Or did you just go for it from day one because it was a plant? So I just went for it, but I didn't know what I was going for. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have these like, 
I had no idea that it was going to be anything worth. I mean, I thought the whole thing failed. And that was, I was pretty certain it would. And we would go back to California with our tail between our legs, you know? And so that kind of got, gets at like this feeling of, I had just this immense pessimism about the whole thing and found myself surprised along the way that, that anything good was happening till about a year and a half in when I finally looked around, I was like, wow, God's at work. And then I began to go, okay, well, if God's at work, then what could happen? And that's where the dreaming began to happen. Before that, I, I, I was probably the most pessimistic person about the whole thing. I just, I had no idea that anything significant, anything of any value could happen because again, everything I thought was that's what happens in big cities. You know, um, that's not what happens in little towns. I actually had someone say one time at a, a conference I was at, someone said, actually from the stage, some of you guys are in small towns, God bless you, but let's be honest what God's doing, he's doing in the cities. And then that's how the sermon began. You know, that's what I had believed. And so I went to conferences so I could be part of the big stuff God was doing. And I went home to lead a church where I didn't feel like anything would ever happen. And it was along the way that I began to get a vision for more as I saw that God was at work, you know? What are some of the things you're doing that are that have resonated? I mean, this will sound weird that this is, this is different, but just, you know, we hear people all the time say, and you just preach through the Bible, and we've never heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about the gospel every week, and people— People, I mean, one lady came up to me and she said, did you say Jesus loved me just because he loves me? And I was like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. You know, John three sixteen, God loves you. That, it was pretty simple. And she was weeping. She said, I've been in the church for 37 years, every Sunday and Wednesday, and no one's ever told me that. So I didn't realize how countercultural gospel could be in a culture of church-going people. So in a non-life-giving church then, what is church about? I think it can be about being nice. Um, I think it can be a bit of a political rally. Um, I've been to church services in, in our small town where they literally played Fox news from the front. Seriously. Yeah. I think it could be the, it's, it's, it's a sort of, um, it's a place to hide until God gets us out of this hell hole, um, that we're living in. This is what I think church can really become, you know, for, for this is what it is for lots of these, lots of folks. And, and so actually saying, man, the, the gospel is true. It's good news, not good advice. And these things we take for granted, you know, and, and we've heard at conferences and, you know, in cities and all the rest. It's just people don't know this, you know, um, and, and that we there's a purpose for why I'm here, that God out of seven billion people on planet Earth put me here right now because he wanted to he predetermined exact times and places, Acts 17 says. And he wants me here and he gave me the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and he wants to do something through me. He, he gave me gifts I can leverage. I mean, all of that is stuff that most people have just never considered. People who go to church, they're just trying to be nice and go to heaven when they die. You know, they're not really believing the gospel for themselves or others or using their life to do anything about it. And, and that's for the people who already go to church. And then there's just heaps and heaps of people more and more in, in the South, you know, in small towns like mine across the country even that just don't go to church at all. Yeah, we, we, we routinely, we had a, I had a friend tell me recently, I invited them to Easter and they were like, well, why? It was just bunnies. They didn't know that Easter was us celebrating Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's in my town with church buildings everywhere. You think that's, that feels like the Middle East, you know, it doesn't feel like small town America, but it is. How do you cast vision in a small church? Is, are there any differences from how you do it in other churches or small town church? You got a big church in a small town. So hear what I'm saying. So I think, I think there are some similarities and we have, you know, we have a big God and we have big problems. I think you nuance that 
when you get into like, what are the problems we face and how does this big God solve those, those problems, you know? But I, I think, um, I, I think sometimes what I hear is guys casting vision and you can tell they're not really thinking about this town. They're thinking about something, something bigger. They seem unaware of what's actually, what's actually going on, you know? And, um, and so I, I think, um, I think that that's, I think that's a challenge with casting vision. I think the other thing that I was saying earlier is, you know, it's really possible for, you know, a big vision in a small town to lead to a really big head, you know, it can lead to like this ego, like through the roof. And in a small town, there's a sense in which they want that, you know, Matthew 23, Jesus, he warned, he, he condemns the Pharisees that they want to go, they go everywhere and they love that everyone knows them and greets them. They love this. And I, I just never saw this until recently. That that is that is like totally possible in a small town. Everywhere I go, people know who I am, and they greet me. And there's a sense of like respect in, in many circles. I mean, it's, it feels odd to even talk like this, but it's true. You know, mm. uh, I mean, I, I've I've gotten influence that I don't deserve that I, I, I never expected. I mean, it's just immense the 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 influence and the, and the opportunity I have to make to make an influence in our community. Um, but it's very, it's, it's a slippery slope to begin to love that. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing. Everybody knows who I am. It's a bad thing for me to start to love that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's the challenge, you know, is man in a small town, if you start casting a big vision, I think people will rally around that. You know, you've got to watch out. You don't get a, a big head in the process, which I think is way more possible in a small town than in a big city. No, that's, that's counterintuitive, it rings true, and it's very perceptive and honest on your part. I appreciate that. You have gone multi-site in small towns, which a decade ago was unthinkable. I'm sure a lot of people would still think, no, you can't really do that, but you've met with some effectiveness in that. Talk yeah. to us about um, why you went multi-site and what that looks like. So we had people just driving in from further and further away. I mean, hour and a half, an hour, sometimes two hours in each direction. And I just, you know, I didn't want to build this mega center that would be unsustainable long term. I didn't want to get to the place where we couldn't afford the light bill. You know, we had such a huge building. And, and I didn't like the fact that, you know, we were, you know, we weren't really helping the people who needed help in these little towns. I mean, we were, we were, we were becoming a place for Christians to come and have a good time, but we weren't really, there were people who needed to come who were never going to make that kind of drive. And so, so you were uh, consolidating the existing market at your church, right. right? Already Christian, thank goodness there's, you know, a Walmart in my city. Here, here we go. We're going to go shopping. Exactly. And, and kind of in addition to that, there's the challenge of in, in, in small towns, you don't get these, you don't get lots of building opportunities. There's not like lots of buildings. So we were facing real size dynamics. Um, we were going to have to go just get ourselves into a big old, you know, pile of debt, you know, to, to do something that I didn't think we should do in the first place. Hmm. And so that forced us into thinking through multi-site. Um, but, you know, how we, how we do it feels different than a lot of the ways that um, it, it gets portrayed. You know, when you say multi-site, people think a certain thing. Um, we don't have, personally, we don't have like a franchise type model where it feels like a Starbucks. Sure. We, we, we've had to turn the volume up on things like contextualization, um, we give tons of autonomy at the site level. We, we have this kind of 
Bible verse in mind, you know, in, in Revelation where uh, John sees diversity, but he hears unity. Um, that's kind of our heart. We want to be able to, we, want to we, we can look a little different, but we want to sound the same. But man, these, these towns are so nuanced that it really requires that level of, of kind of cultural knowledge to do church in a way that makes sense there. And um, so that, that's kind of been the biggest challenge, I think, with the multi-site thing. What would you say your model is? Um, you know, just some of the things that you're like, yeah, here are, th- here are three or four cornerstones of how we do multi-site. Yeah, so um, high view of, you know, relationship across the leadership team, um, a real shared sense of like we, we it's not a uh, hire people in kind of thing. It's a bring people through kind of thing. So most of our guys, we brought them through. Um, we, we've taken them from the ground up. They were just working regular jobs and now they're leading sites and uh, they're elders or pastors at, at these locations. So, so that, that thing has been really helpful for us, that sense of brotherhood. Again, contextualization has been a big one for us to, to really think through every single one of these things and, and just think, how can we do church the way that makes the most sense you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, you know, that he wants, he doesn't want anyone to, to be able to find fault with his ministry. So he, he doesn't have any obstacles. And so we've tried to remove all the obstacles so they, they get to the one sort of obstacle, the rock of offense, Jesus. But up until then, we want to make it feel as comfortable as we possibly can. Um, I think um, a high view of, of community. Um, so really fighting for a, a sense of local community, um, you know, on the ground that there's whether that's missional communities or community groups or or you know it looks different in every site but that 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 needs to really feel like it's happening church is not just a meeting it's a community um because you know in small towns what you get is church is a meeting and then a lot of these buildings have what they call a fellowship hall which is where they eat potato salad when somebody dies <laughs> they don't sleep fellowship you know and so so we have to we have to say actually community is a massive part of christianity it's a massive part of local church I think with that, you know, like we, we, we want, we want there to be consistent, um, excellent contextualized gospel preaching. Um, so that the people aren't, they're, they're not being, they're not, they're not having somebody preach over their heads. They're preaching to their hearts. We're thinking about the people who are actually in the room. You know, that, that's the problem I see a lot. Guys, guys are preaching in, in such a way that you can tell they think their, their seminary professor is in the room. He's not there. He's not grading this. Mm-hmm. Tim Keller's not in the room. You're not on stage at your favorite conference. These are these are the people who God's put in the room, and, and we want to preach to those people. And, and so those are things that those are just some of the things we really try to fight for. That's so grounded. I'm I'm curious about how you develop and spot leaders. I mean, to lead a church your size over four locations, that takes some skill and ability and talent. And I think in a lot of small villages, small towns, you know, you haven't got a high percentage of university educated people, you know, they tend to go to the cities. And like you say, a lot of people leave small towns. And, you know, I think employers would find that a little more challenging. How do you do that in the church? I heard a pastor one time talk about, I mean, he used the phrase shoulder tapping um, and it just resonated with what we've been doing since the beginning. We're just looking around going, Hey, there's that guy's, he keeps showing up. He's reliable. Let's give him something to do. And sort of one thing leads to another. Um, so we, we, we have a real, um, a real value that we want to bring people through from the inside. Every time there's a hole in our staff, you know, we don't even think about, it doesn't cross our mind to like send out for resumes or, or whatever. 
it would be so hard for someone to come from the outside into this that that, that has got to be the absolute like worst case scenario. And, and we think that, you know, if there's a hole here, that there's a, a solid chance that God's put here who he wants to fill that hole. We just have to recognize them and develop them, you know, raise them up and, and release them. And so um, that conviction um, is always driving us that, you know, we'll, we'll wait till the very last second to hire someone, you know, because we're hoping for it to be someone from us. And it, it just has it's always been, it's always been, God's just always come through um, in that way. And then, um, and then we, we have to have like a, a systematic approach to developing leaders because, you know, church our size, it just won't happen by accident. And so, um, you know, every year I do a, a, a leadership cohort, it's a nine month thing. Um, and all the elders get together and we get to pull names together. And I want this guy and I want this guy. And we get to like throw all these names in the, in the hat. And, and then we sort of, you know, call that list down to what's manageable, 12 to 15 guys. And then I spend the next nine months really pouring into them. They read tons. They write lots of essays. They, we talk about all kinds of stuff. I get to know their families, if they're married, if they have kids or whatever, and getting into their life and doctrine. And then over that nine months, we kind of get to figure out, man, is this a fit or not? And then a lot of those guys end up being our elders. I mean, all, all of our elders have been through this process. We've got 16 elders. Um, we'll probably be at 20 elders by the end of the year. All of them, all of these elder pastors, that's a synonymous term for us. All of them have been through this, have come through this. And we just, it's been the most fruitful thing for us, but it's got to be intention. How have you figured all this out? I don't know. <laughs> Real-time learning, Donnie. Yeah, just little by little. That's uh, pretty amazing. Where, what do you think the potential for One Harbor is? When you look ahead five, 10 years, do you think, you, you know, four sites? Wow, we're very fortunate to have that. Do you think you could be in more towns and villages? What, what do you think? I think that, so my biggest prayer every day is God keep us faithful, keep us humble, and keep us hopeful. That's what I try yeah. to pray every day. God, and I mean that for me. Firstly, God, keep me humble, keep me faithful, keep me hopeful, um, keep me from stumbling. You know, um, I think if that happens, I think that God can and will use us to do more. You know, there may be, it may be that there's lots of people, you know, at Bible colleges ready to run into these little towns across our region, but I don't think so. Um, and I've told our town, go ahead and, you know, just go ahead and, and, and deal with the Calvary's not writing in. It's up to us. You know, this one's, this is on us. This is our region. It's our backyard. And if this is going to happen, I think it's on us until God surprises us from every angle. Um, I, I think we need to reproduce another 10 or so times across our region to effectively, you know, multiply the gospel. And I mean, that's going to, that's going to take 10 to 20 years. And then, you know, the goal would be to plant multiplying churches who, you know, who continue to do the same. I also think we've got a massive opportunity to, to deal with the addiction um, in our area, I go to sometimes between one and three overdoses a day. Oh my! It is um, it is shocking how much um, addiction is 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 all around us and all around small towns like ours, and we can't turn a blind eye to that. You know, part of being the church is is seeing that the town's problems are the church's problems, and so now we're, we're dreaming and, and asking God to to give us strategy and give us a, a plan. We um, we need to help people get to rehab. We need to help people get back from rehab. There's so many levels and layers to this, and it feels insurmountable. I've done two funerals in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's just, it's nonstop. But um, we we think that, 
you know, if we stay humble, we stay faithful, we stay hopeful that um, God will use us to, to make a difference there too, you know? I want you to speak a word of encouragement or advice for leaders who are in a small town, heading into a small town, thinking maybe maybe they're not hopeful. Maybe they're not, you know, looking to the future. What would you tell a leader trying to make it work in a small context? Yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, you need to kind of get into the Bible and get a theology that'll lift your head. God is sovereign. He is the God of heaven and earth. And like I said, in Acts 17, he, he predetermined where you and I were going to live and when we were going to live there. He could have had us born in any time in history, anywhere in the whole wide world. And, and you are right now where you are because he wants you there. One of my favorite missionaries is Jim Elliott. He said, wherever you're at, be all there. And it may be that God will move you and your family to a place with great coffee and a target, but he hasn't. And right now where you are has big problems that only Jesus can solve. And he put you there. He put the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead inside of you. And and, and he wants you to do something about those problems around you. And I, I would encourage you to not be isolated, to not give in to idolatry that would, you know, that would cause you to feel like you've been benched, you know, or cause you to want to be drafted to the major leagues of, of, of big city ministry. And I would charge you to consider how you can make much of the gospel in a way that's relevant um, to the people all around you because they need it. They, they need the gospel and God put you there to give it to them. Uh, you wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I think it's fantastic because you self-published it, but it doesn't look like a self-published book, if you guys are wondering. You did a great job of that. It's called Small Town Jesus. Tell us a little bit about that, and I just want to encourage leaders to pick it up. It's available on Amazon, correct? Yep, it's available on Amazon. You can get it printed or and on Kindle. So the premise of the book is taking the gospel seriously in seemingly unimportant places, and so it's some of the stuff we've talked about on this on this call, it's, you know, why should we do small town ministry? And then how should we do small town ministry? Um, that's kind of how the book lays itself out. And so the heart behind it was to, you know, convince us theologically and missionally and philosophically of why this is important. And then um, try to share some of my best learnings and help, you know, pastors deal with the challenges of small town ministry, whether they're from there or not. My goal is to try to help encourage and equip people, you know, to, to make much of Jesus wherever they are. It's a good book. You guys, if you're in that context, you should definitely pick it up. Uh, Donnie knows what he's talking about. Uh, where can people, if they want to find more, tell us a, a website where for your church, and then where can they find you online? So the church, um, you can go to oneharborchurch.com. Uh, it's harbor spelled H-A-R-B-O-R. Right. Not the British spelling, not the British not the spelling. Oneharborchurch.com. Um, and then um, you can also go to smalltownjesus.com. There's a lot of blogs on there, podcasts, lots of videos from me and, and, and some others, um, all kinds of like, you know, I'm building a, 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 an army of, of, um, of pastors and leaders, you know, in different regions. Um, and, and you can check on there and see who's in your area and get up, get up with them. I mean, there's just tons and tons of resources on there for you. Um, and then I also, I'm, I'm on social media, you know, as much as I can. be. So Twitter is a good place to find me. Uh, we'll link all to that in the show notes. Do you sleep, Donnie? Like this seems incredible. My goodness. I'm trying to do more of that. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I'm not good at it. I'm so glad you freed up some time uh, to build into leaders today. Just thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your humility. 
And thank you for your willingness to serve. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Well, I think this has so many applications. And I know some of you listen from the business space. But as I said in a previous episode, I really think it makes a big difference when not only church leaders listen to the business community, but business leaders are increasingly learning from church leaders. There's a lot of application points. By the way, we also have full transcripts of this interview. So if you're a reader and you want to go deeper or you want to share it with your staff or pull some quotes out, head on over to the show notes, just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 234. Everything is there for you for free. And the reason it's there for you for free is because of great partners with this podcast and we vet them and we make sure that we believe in them. So make sure if you haven't checked out Red Letter Challenge, head on over to Red Letter Challenge slash carry. Uh, check out what they can do for you. And also PushPay, get a mobile strategy that works. All right, head on over to pushpay.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y as well. And uh, we just want to partner you with people and companies and organizations and causes that can make a big, big difference in your life. Well, next week, yes, it is Christmas. We are back. At some point, you're going to want to pop in the earbuds and listen to John Van Pay because uh, he is the leader of Outreach's fastest growing church in America. And he's kind of cracked the code on being home five nights a week. He's found margin and he's learned how to say no which is a very rare combination. Rapidly growing church, like fastest in the nation, and your home five nights a week, dude, how do you do it? Here's an excerpt. I'll never forget the day that I walked into my home and my wife was standing in the kitchen with a few suitcases packed. And my first instinct was like, oh, where are we going? You're surprising me with the trip. It's not our anniversary. Are we going to the mountains or the beach? And she looked at me in the eye and she said, it's over. I'm moving back home to Houston. You're a great pastor, but you're simply not home enough to be a good daddy and a good husband. Not a bad episode to play over Christmas week, isn't it? As you're like answering email on your phone and your family's mad at you. So that's what we're going to do. And guys, you know, if you subscribe, you get this uh, automatically delivered to your devices every Tuesday whenever we release an episode. And we're moving towards six episodes a month, especially in 2019. We just want to bring you more content, help you lead like never before, you know the drill. If this has helped you, would you share it on social um, or maybe email it or text the link to a friend? And if you would be so kind, take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's available everywhere. And again, we got show notes for every episode. Head on over to kerryneuhoff.com. The easiest way, even on the Googles, just Google the name of the guest. In this week, it was Donnie Griggs and my name or an approximation of it. And uh, yeah, you'll find it. So guys, I'm praying for you and cheering for you as you head into Christmas, both personally and also vocationally. So I hope it's a really good restful season, a great time at your church or whatever you happen to be doing. Thanks so much for listening. And I do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.